there's the weevil there. He's kind of a gray-brown. He's freezing up. If he sees your shadow, he drops, as I said earlier. It's kind of a nondescript weevil, nothing fancy. He blends in very, very well with the, the background. Between his fingers, Philip Tipping holds the long, narrow leaves of a weakened tree. Tipping is dressed in a blue shirt and khaki pants and wearing a floppy canvas hat. On one leaf is the weevil, an insect so small I can hardly see it in the midday sunlight. To me, that's the, the hero of the biocontrol of Mel Lucas story in Florida. He's got some chevrons on his back, but now he's starting to move. Pretty soon he's going to, he might fly. I'm going to put him right back on the tree, though. Still has some eating to do. I'm Amy Green. From WMFE and the Florida Center for Investigative Reporting, this is Drained, a podcast series about the massive plan to save the Everglades. Episode 4, Never-Ending Restoration. The river of grass, even in its reduced state, remains the nation's largest subtropical wilderness. It alights the imagination as a veritable Garden of Eden, with creeping vegetation and reptilian, otherworldly creatures like the Burmese python, a snake that is among the largest on Earth, measuring 23 feet or more in length and weighing 200 pounds. But some of these plants and animals, like the python, do not belong in the Everglades. They are invasive. These trees do not look very good. They've been chewed up pretty good. Few invasive plants of the Everglades are more infamous than the Melaleuca, a tall and narrow tree from Australia that can grow as high as 65 feet with curling, peeling bark and an aroma of eucalyptus. My name is Philip Tipping. I'm the research leader here at the Invasive Plant Research Laboratory. When this tree invades, it turns basically marshland, um, all kinds of, any habitat you want to mention, including just uh, sawgrass prairies into forests of Melaleuca. And it utterly transformed the landscape, changed all the burn cycles. It affected nutrient levels, it affected wildlife, it outcompeted other plants. The Melaleuca was introduced in South Florida a century ago as an ornamental, and also because the tree was believed to be thirsty enough that it would help drain the Everglades, a living embodiment of humankind's conquest of the river of grass. You can see they're scoring the leaves here, just removing the plant tissue. Today, the Melaleuca would be easy to dismiss as yet another weed of the Everglades if its resilience wasn't so amazing. A little roundup here is not going to do the trick. Chop the tree down and it grows right back. Burn it and a single tree can release up to 20 million seeds. Poison it and its seedlings sprout again. The tree has no natural predators here. And you can see there's also adult feeding where you see in the leaves these sort of brown lines where these weevils have just come through and, and drilled holes through it. Tipping is part of the first and only Everglades restoration project to reach completion, a multi-agency effort to control invasive plant species like the Melaleuca that threaten to transform the river of grass into something else. Plus, they're also laying eggs on it. There's a little brown speck on the end of the leaf. That's actually the, the egg. To do this, the scientists are employing not machetes or poisons, 
but tiny insects like this weevil. The insects have forced the plant to make a decision to either produce the leaves that have been destroyed by those insects or to produce more seed. I met Tipping in September outside his research lab near Fort Lauderdale. Among rows of melaleucas his team was experimenting on. And so what happens, each tree doesn't produce as much seed. And as a result, the plant is less invasive. Seed production in melaleuca is reduced as, as much as 99%. The rate of growth is half what it normally is. And so a melaleuca has really in, now been in retrograde. And it's a, it is a, considered one of the biggest success stories of biocontrol in the natural world in, in native systems. We sit down every Tuesday at 11 o'clock and we go over the entire system. We look at places where there might be a fish kill due to low oxygen, to where there, there's uh, not enough water, and we make decisions within the legal framework of managing the system. Today, what remains of the Everglades hardly functions as a natural system. Running the machine are the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and South Florida Water Management District, men and women like the district's Fred Sklar, who hold in their grip the river of grasses, lifeblood water. And the legal framework is something that most people don't realize that managing this system is rule-based, that we have rules at which we open structures and close structures, and it took decades to develop these rules. To answer the question of this podcast series, 20 years later, how's Everglades restoration going? We have to acknowledge it no longer is possible to bring back the river of grass to a pre-drainage state. By now, the region is too developed, with millions of people living here. And most of us are happy with modern conveniences like flood control and a dedicated drinking water supply. A reincarnation of an untouched Everglades is not the mission of restoration, and we've already talked about other goals like better water quality, a more natural flow, and more water storage. And while the Everglades never will be completely restored, there has been progress, says Charles Lee of Audubon, Florida. We've got accomplishments that, are, you know, whether it's the uh, completion of the Kissimmee Restoration Project, uh, which is on schedule to be completed very soon, restoring well over 30,000 acres of wetlands in the Kissimmee watershed. Um, there are, I mean, there are remarkable achievements that are happening. The fact that as much of the agricultural area has been turned back into, into natural Everglades plants in the stormwater treatment areas and water storage areas, and, and the fact that even though, you know, I can, I can criticize the uh, water quality as not uh, getting cleaner faster, nonetheless, uh, it is much cleaner than when we started out on that project. And now we have a new governor and Governor DeSantis who appears to be all in in favor of Everglades restoration. And that's great, but the Everglades are far from saved. Perhaps the most poignant sign of trouble is found in the iconic alligator. 
That's the groan of an alligator as the animal is brought aboard an airboat in the Loxahatchee National Wildlife Refuge outside of West Palm Beach. I was in that airboat, along with the alligator and two biologists, to report on the animal's plight a few years back. The biologist roped the alligator around its neck and then let the animal thrash in its death roll until it was exhausted. Then they secured its snout with electrical tape and brought it aboard. The alligator measured about six feet long. Speaking of otherworldly creatures, the alligator certainly seems like an animal from a distant past with its armored lizard-like body, muscular tail, and powerful jaws. And it is. The species is more than 150 million years old, having survived the mass extinction that claimed its contemporaries at the time, the dinosaurs. Alligators are a symbol of the Everglades, in part because scientists have designated them so. In the Everglades, alligators are considered an indicator species, monitored as a measure of the watershed's well-being. Scientists concentrate on ecological indicators because it would be impossible for them to monitor every animal and plant in an ecosystem all the time. And in the Everglades, alligators are not doing great. They weigh 80% of what they should, they grow more slowly, reproduce less, and die younger than other alligators. What the alligators and other ecological indicators of the Everglades are telling us is that 20 years into restoration, there's still a lot to do. There's another problem. When Everglades restoration was drafted, the plan was based on historical ecological trends in the River of Grass. But as the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine observed in 2018, in its latest congressionally mandated review of the progress, Florida's climate is changing. We didn't have enough scientific information as to how things were changing. We knew sea levels were rising, or the rate of sea level rise was increasing, but those types of, of those kinds of information were not incorporated into the modeling to determine which projects would be most important, or those that may not be as important because uh, sea level rise might overwhelm the benefits. Steve Davis of the Everglades Foundation says rising temperatures are stressing the Everglades landscape and wildlife. The hotter the water gets, the, the more it affects their physiology. Just like we go outside, I start sweating in a matter of seconds, um, it, it affects the physiology of these organisms to the point where they become stressed if it's, if it's too hot. Temperatures and rainfalls are deviating from historical patterns. Patches of the Everglades literally are collapsing, as we heard in the first episode, as sea level rise pressures freshwater marshes. Saltwater mangroves are moving inland, replacing the sawgrass. Seawater also is creeping into the underground aquifer, threatening the drinking water supply. Scientists believe restoration can make the Everglades more resilient, as more fresh water can help hold back the encroaching saltwater. We know that uh, South Florida could be much drier because as it gets hotter, you get more water evaporating off the landscape back to the atmosphere. And so building that storage helps to hold on to water when we do get it and use it as best we can for the environment for a water supply in South Florida. Across the globe, climate change represents a challenge for restoration work. The problem in the Everglades is that the effort is so complex and costly, and there's not enough water storage to meet even immediate needs, much less those of the future. 
That concept of adaptive management that we've already talked about gives engineers room to adapt as the situation evolves. In its latest report, the National Academies called for, in the scientists' words, a mid-course assessment that would take into account climate change, which the scientists said had been neglected in the planning up to that point. The scientists said that at recent funding rates, construction on congressionally authorized projects alone will continue for at least another 65 years, putting their completion date well beyond 2080. The scientists said the projects need to be adapted for the Everglades of the future. Let's stop here for a minute. The scientists said construction on congressionally authorized projects alone will not be complete until at least 2080, nearly 100 years after Everglades restoration was signed into law. Let's remember the restoration was envisioned as about a 30-year effort. It should be almost done by now. This means the projects will not be complete within the lifetimes of many of today's Floridians for whom the Everglades represent their most important freshwater resource. You mentioned it it took 10 years to put someone on the moon. SERP (laughs) has been going on for twice that amount of time. Why is it taking so long? Do you think SERP is working? Again, just as a reminder, SERP is the acronym for the government's massive Everglades restoration program. Well, I do think SERP is working. And and I think that the major thing that could expedite SERP would be more funding. Lee brought up a state plan approved in 2019 for an expansion of the Florida Turnpike. Interestingly, the if you look at the money that's involved in that, that the legislature just sort of... Uh, at the drop of the hat said, oh, yes, well, we'll go ahead with 330 miles of turnpike. Um, you know, you're looking at something like uh, 20, 22, 25 billion with a B dollars to build that. And, you know, if you look at the amount of money that uh, is being put towards SERP, it is in the billions, but it's in the comparatively low billions. And when you consider the fact that the entire hydrologic future of South Florida is at stake. Uh, One would hope ultimately that more urgency and more money would be invested in it. But with that said, in the history of environmental matters in the United States, to my knowledge, dwarfs the investment that has been made on any one project anywhere within the United States. And so I, I think that uh, for all of the negatives that can be lobbed at SERP, the reality is that in the political environment that we are in and recognizing that SERP is not going to be the uh, project of one presidential administration or one gubernatorial administration in the country or in the state, uh, I think the fact that it has held together and that the political basis of support for it has not only held together, but has grown, is is a tremendous achievement. Do you think that the delay and and the lack of funding, do you think those things are failures of SERP? Here's Fred Sklar of the South Florida Water Management District. I don't think it's a failure. 
But, you know, it's, it's hard for someone like me to answer a question like that when I dedicated pretty much my life to it. It would imply that my work is a failure. And Charles Lee of Audubon, Florida. Space travel, to the degree we accomplished it, going to the moon and back, uh, was a cinch uh, when you compare it to the complexities of the hydrology of the Everglades. That's probably an overstatement, since the Apollo program cost, in today's dollars, more than $150 billion. Everglades restoration, by contrast, is projected to cost $17 billion, although the plan remains one of the world's most ambitious efforts at ecological restoration. The multiple federal and state agencies involved, as well as more than 60 environmental groups, say we've never seen anything like this. The plan's scale and ambitions, they say, are unprecedented. But have we, in Florida? The restoration bears a striking resemblance to the replumbing that came before it. A massive man versus nature project. And while that project was aimed at taking control of the expansive wetlands once and for all, this new effort is designed to revive the river of grass and secure the region's drinking water for future generations. A half century ago, we thought we'd conquered nature. But what that enormous project really did was imperil our future, putting at risk the region's drinking water. Now we have a new, even more enormous plan intended to fix what we broke. Maybe it can't be fixed, not in a real way. The restoration was supposed to be close to finish by now, but it's clear today we face decades of more work to re-engineer the Everglades. Only one project, a program to control invasive plant species like the Melaleuca, is complete. The most ambitious parts, aimed at the fundamental goals we've talked about, flow, storage, and water quality, are not done. Remember those 300 wells proposed around Lake Okeechobee? The ones where water managers would inject millions of gallons underground. They're not likely to happen as planned. The number of wells believed to be achievable at this point is about 180. And critical questions remain about whether the wells might do more harm than good, as they would provide a path for surface water contaminated with fertilizers and other runoff to be injected directly into Florida's sensitive aquifer. Restoring the Everglades is really a challenge of how to manage billions of gallons of water with no place to go. The truth is, to this day, after two decades and billions of dollars invested, we still don't know how to address this problem. The story of Florida is inextricably tied to the Everglades. Our effort to drain the river of grass to bring Mother Nature to heal here allowed for the state's explosive growth, making it today the third most populous state in the nation. When we drained the Everglades to make way for agriculture in the vast concrete jungles of Central and South Florida, we didn't anticipate the consequences of our actions. We didn't realize we'd be putting our drinking water at risk. We didn't realize we'd poison our environment. We didn't realize we'd threaten the future livability of our state. 
Now we're at it again. Another massive man versus nature plan in the Everglades whose ecological consequences we can't predict. Maybe we can do it. Maybe with billions of dollars and decades of time, we can save the Everglades and Florida's future. Or maybe we should admit, at long last, that Mother Nature and the Everglades cannot be conquered. This has been Drained. Drained is a podcast from WMFE and the Florida Center for Investigative Reporting. It's reported and hosted by me, Amy Green, and edited by Trevor Aronson and Matthew Petty. Mix and sound design by Paul Vikas. Mac Dula, Jenny Babcock, and Ryan Ellison provided additional production help. Cliff Tumatel also contributed. Special thanks to Johns Hopkins University Press. If you are interested in learning more about the Everglades and its restoration, look for my book, Moving Water, to be published in March 2021 by Johns Hopkins University Press. Thanks for listening.